Well, I'm David Butler. I have the privilege of serving as one of the uh, pastor and elders here at Charles River. And Josh, from time to time, will say, hey, could you be up this next Sunday? And uh, I always look forward to doing that. For some of you, you know who I am. I've been here from, uh, Gail and I have been here for almost five years now, even though we have to move about in terms of what our role is in the city. And I'll get into that in a minute. But every time we get to be here, it's always like... uh, coming home for us. So we're just glad to, to be back. And for those of you who are brand new, I look forward to maybe meeting you sometime uh, along the way. But my role as uh, not only at, uh, as being a pastor and elder here at Charles River, but also serve with an organization called the North American Mission Board or the SIN Network. And what that means is in Boston, we're uh, charged with the opportunity and vision of planning as many life-giving churches as we possibly can, starting seeing what God can raise up and do in places all over the city. Back in 2005, there were two churches in Greater Boston that were part of our tribe. Today, there are over 70. In fact, tomorrow and Tuesday, we'll have 11 different candidates who will go through an assessment process and are looking to plant life-giving churches. So that's very exciting. And um, Charles River Church is a big part of that, and, and Josh and uh, the leadership, and love being a part of here with Kevin and Jua and serving with them in, the, in this particular role. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I could keep singing on that, that song that Regina uh, was leading us. I could keep singing that all day long, right? I don't... I, I, I think if I sang it, you wouldn't want to ever sing it again. So uh, I get that. But I sure do love that song. Wow, it's going to pulsate in my mind, I have a feeling, this next week. I hope it does in yours as well. Well, last week, Josh introduced us to a new series, Letters and Lampstands. And it's diving into the very last book of the Bible, which some people look upon as kind of this mysterious, tough-to-figure-out kind of a book. But if you'll just keep in mind that it's just Jesus unveiling himself in a very powerful way, helping John see in a very powerful way uh, his love for the church and to arouse within us a sense of love for the church as well. And the way we're beginning it is by looking at what you might think of as postcards that a postman delivered to seven different outposts of the gospel. And these are seven different churches, and they're all located in in a country and a nation that's been in the news an awful lot this week uh, over the last several days in Turkey. And you can see it up on the map there. And this morning, we're going to take a look at the postcard, the letter, the Dear Church from Jesus letter to the church at Smyrna. Just give you a couple of things right up front before we pray and dive into it. But um, this letter, this postcard is the sm- smallest of the seven not a, in terms of its content. It's also very interesting. This is one of the few of these seven churches, these postcards, that does not have a word of concern or commendation, condemnation or criticism. So that should say, wow, that means we're not going to hear anything really challenging this morning. Quite the opposite. And so I hope that as we take a look at this very short postcard letter, Dear Church from Jesus, uh, that we'll hear something that has everything to do with your life, this church, and what God is saying to us. Okay? All right? Hey, let's pray and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for uh, moments like this to quiet ourselves uh, in the sense of uh, pushing the world, our daily demands and schedules, our regular routine, pushing aside, stepping into an environment, seeing people, having people breathe life into us just by their presence, uh, being able to hear words that we want to we want to make our own that you are a wave maker that you are a miracle worker promise keeper light in the darkness father those words uh, give life to us and give us hope thank you for what you're going to open our eyes to see today just as you did with john you said i want to give you an unveiling i want you to hear this message i have for this church at smyrna And Father, that's not just a message to a real church, but a church that was representative for all churches in the ages to come and for us here this morning. So we commit this time to you, Lord Jesus. May our eyes be open to see what you want us to see, hear what you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Several years ago, there was this fictitious uh, guide given to a group of Peace Corps workers who were going to be serving in South America. And in it, they described how, what they should do if they ever came upon an anaconda. And so they wrote out these instructions. Now, the Peace Corps workers didn't know at the time that it was fictitious, but this is what they told them to do. These were the 10 things you do if you encounter an anaconda in South America. If you're attacked by an anaconda, do not run. The snake is faster than you are. Second, lie flat on the ground. Third, put your arms tight at your sides and your legs tight around each other. Four, the snake will begin to climb over your body. Five, do not panic. Six, the snake will begin to swallow you from the feet end. Seven, step six will take a long time. Eight, after a while, slowly and with a, as little movement as possible, reach down, take your knife, and very gently slide it into this snake's mouth, and then suddenly sever the snake's head. Nine, be sure your knife is sharp. <laughs> Ten, be sure you have a knife. Now, when I first heard a pastor share that, he followed up with these remarks, and I thought it was so timely, wanted to bring them into our conversation today. Here's what he said. You never really know when life will throw uh, crazy things at you, what's lurking around the corner. But when you are called, and you will be called, you need to be ready for that day. If you wait until a crisis hits, because it will hit, you have waited too long. You need to be prepared first. Life comes at you pretty crazy sometimes. And that's not an if, it's a when. And when that happens, and when your life, as we're titling this message, is under siege, when that happens, it's not a time as they say, if you're drowning, it's a lousy time to try to learn how to swim. You need to be prepared. So think of this message, as it were, as a preparation manual, a letter, some things that we need to grab a hold of in light of what could be very much a part of our future and will in some degree be a part of our future if, as Christ followers, we dare to live and pursue the Jesus life. This is going to be a part of your life and mine, okay? And for those of you who are not Christ followers at this point and you're, you're just curious and you're just exploring, we don't want to ever promise you, we don't want to ever create this understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower in the sense of all the benefits. Certainly we want to talk about that, but there are certain realities you need to be aware of as well to know what you're stepping into. So with that in mind, we're going to take a look at this particular postcard letter. Before we do that, I want to ask you three questions to get you thinking personally. All right, here's the first question. What would you identify as the hardest seasons of your life that you've ever faced? If you were to just run back through your life, just a quick 60 seconds, if you were to run back, what would you write down on your paper in front of you on your program there? What would you write down? This was the toughest season of my life. This was the valley of valleys. What would you write down? What, would you, what comes to mind? And then as you're thinking about that, how would you describe your relationship to God and your faith during that period of time? When you were hit with it, you were plunged into it, life moved in with some crushing blows, you were overwhelmed by the reality of what you were facing. How did that affect? What was your relationship with God like during that period of time? And then to make it even more, perhaps, right in the moment, how are you doing right now in the tough times that you're facing? How are you doing right now? Okay? And with all of that, you kind of hold on to that right now. Now we're going to move into this postcard. Now before we get right into the actual words itself, it's a letter. Let's, let's look at it again, and we'll uh, follow along. And if you have a copy of Scripture, if not, you can pick up a Bible or follow it up here on the screen. 
Here's what he says. He writes, he says, I want you, as he writes to the the church, he says, he describes himself. How does he describe himself? He describes himself as the what? The first and the last. We're going to get into that. When he talks about to the letter uh, uh, to the church at Smyrna, Smyrna. That word itself it comes from the word just uh, myrrh, a, a very precious kind of uh, uh, perfume that was the result of something being squeezed. That has a lot of connotation to what we're going to be discovering this morning. But now, uh, Smyrna itself, of all the seven churches and locations that, that John would hear from regarding what Jesus had to say to them, of, this, of all of them, this one stood out above them in terms of their, their significance in terms of that particular day and time. Let me give you a little bit of a, a picture of this particular city. It was a harbor city. It was a city that was known as the, the loveliest of Asia. It was a city of probably about 250,000 people during the, the time when John received this letter from Jesus, this dear church letter. It was also a city that had this vast sports stadium. It also had one of the world's, at that particular time, renowned theaters. It had a large, uh, large renowned library. It was a well-established, very significant city. Now, interesting enough about this city, it had been destroyed twice. It had been destroyed twice. The last time it was rebuilt... After having been destroyed a second time, it was actually rebuilt with the help of Alexander the Great. And it was actually not a city that just kind of came together haphazardly. It was actually where they had a city plan, kind of like Boston. You know, Boston's so, such a planned city, you can always figure out where you are in Boston. Um, but it was a planned city. It had wide streets. It was very clearly laid out. And it was a city that had, uh, it was on a summit and surrounded by 10 different temples to various kinds of gods. And it was a a very stunning city, very renowned city. And one of the things that Smyrna took great pride in was how loyal they were to the Roman Empire and to Caesar worship. They were very loyal to that. In fact, they were in a contest with all the other cities trying to be the city that was chosen to where they could raise up the temple to Roma or to the emperor, and they won. And so they were very, very loyal. Now that has a lot to do with the way Jesus addresses this particular church here in just a moment. All of what I just shared, Jesus shared that within the context of what he wanted this church to hear. He shared it within their own personal context. All right? Okay? All right. Now, With all of that kind of in mind, understand something that at that particular point in time, Smyrna, the whole ideal of Caesar worship, at first was just kind of a thing that all the people in the Roman Empire did in kind of this spontaneous, big kind of an expression. But later on, when Domitian became emperor, he said, hey, from this point on, it's no longer just going to be this spontaneous, everybody go, yeah, Caesar is Lord. From now on, every individual, every year, has to take a, a pinch of incense, burn it to me, and say three words, Caesar is Lord. And when you do that, you'll get a certificate which will allow you to be uh, employed and have a job. So it was essential for your livelihood to take a moment and declare publicly with burning incense, Caesar is Lord. Those three words would be your ticket to prosperity or opportunity. Keep that in mind as we now begin to read through Jesus' letter to this church in Smyrna. All right? So follow along with me. Here's what he says. The lighting up here is for, for, it's not good today for whatever reason. Maybe it's my eyes. Here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. We're going to come back to those words because they're so very, so very important, so very vital to preparing yourself for what's coming our way. 
Here's what he says. I know your afflictions. And when Jesus says, I know, he's talking about having a full awareness. He has a full understanding of the circumstances that they're, they're engaged with. And I, I thought of this as we were, as I was making my way through this this week, how often my mind came to various churches. And I thought about Charles River Church. If Jesus were to say, here's my postcard to you. I know this about you. I wonder what he would write to us. Let's go a little bit further here. I know your, here's what he says. Here's, I know all about, and he begins to describe their current condition. Here's his description. I know all about your afflictions. And the word afflictions there is the word telepsis, and it means an intense, crushing pressure that is inescapable. An intense pressure that is inescapable, that is crushing. Okay? I know all about your affliction. And then he says, I know about your poverty. Two different kinds of poverty. There's the kind of poverty that says barely getting by, just barely making it through, just got enough. And then there's the poverty that says we're destitute. We're not going to survive. That's the poverty here. I know of your financial, economic deprivation. I know how destitute you are. And then he says, yet you are rich. Isn't it interesting? And how, how do you determine if a church is rich? Have you thought about that? How do you determine if a church is By size? By its facilities? By its outstanding staff? By its reputation? How do, you, how do you describe, how do you decide a church is, is rich? Isn't it interesting today there? He's describing a church here that was, it was spiritually rich, materially poor. Uh, I would rather be that than materially wealthy and spiritually poor. And what he's saying, this church had this reputation of being poor under affliction but they were actually rich. What is it that makes a church rich? What makes a church rich is what we're going to find out about this church here. So you got the picture? They're under intense pressure that's inescapable. They are economically destitute. All right? And then he says, And I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews, are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Uh, there was a large Jewish population in Smyrna. Large Jewish population. And the Jewish people were excited about two things when it came to the Roman Empire. Number one, they had been given a pass on Caesar worship. They didn't have to in the way that others did. And secondly, they loved giving Christ's followers a hard time in that particular context. And in this particular case, they would talk about the Christians in the kind of a way that would describe them as cannibals because of the, the partaking of the Lord's Supper. They would describe them in, in terms that would create people to have suspicion about them as though they were a, a cult, or though they were atheists because they didn't believe Caesar is Lord. Their reputation, they were slandered, and they had ridicules sent their way. So what, what do we know about this church? What does Jesus say? Here's what I know about you. You're under intense pressure that you can't escape that's crushing the life out of you. You're absolutely destitute economically. You are beyond poor. And here's what else I know, that everybody is trashing your reputation in the eyes of others. And then, listen to what else he says about them. He says, and we'll come back to this later, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer I tell you, the devil will put some of you into prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. He says, this is where you are? Guess what? Here's what's in your future. You're going to suffer even more. And there will be no relief. There'll be no, there will be no rescue, no intervention no vindication, no relief. Okay, time out. 
How many of you would say, all right, so I'm looking for a church, and the church, the kind of church I want to be a part of, that I want to attend, I want to attend a church that's under intense pressure, crushing affliction that I can't get out of. I want to be a part of a church that is, has their reputation totally trashed by other people in such a negative way that everybody looks upon us with a certain sense of dismissiveness. I want to be a part of a church where because of our faith, all of us are experiencing economic, devastating circumstances. You'd be upset. Yep, that's, that's the kind of church I'm looking to be a part of. Yeah, that was this church. And Jesus is speaking to it. And he's speaking these words to help us to understand what they're, what they're going through. And, it, and you, you, you read about a church like this and you wonder, how in the world did they survive? How in the world did they, how did the world did they make it through? And that's where I want us to go with the rest of the message. And, it, and pause here again. One of the big focus of this entire series, Letters and Lampstands, as you heard Josh describe last week, Jesus warned several of these churches that he would take away their lampstand. He would shut down the lights. There's no warning here. None whatsoever. And yet this is the church you would think that had the least light. It was, had to be flickering in light of all of its circumstances. And yet Jesus says There's no, there is no possibility of this, the light of this church going out. Not this church. Not this church under siege. Okay? All right. Now let's go a little bit further here. And let's, let's take a look at it from a standpoint of what does, what does this mean and, and how can you move forward in terms of it and how can I move forward in it in terms of what this means for you and I personally. So here's what I want to challenge us to think about as we come back to this letter again here in a moment and make it personal. Jesus says to them, Tell this church, do not be afraid and remain faithful. Do not be afraid and remain faithful. And by the way, when he talked about the 10 days of persecution, it's very interesting. Did it mean just it was just going to last 10 days? What is symbolic? Some people actually think that that represented the fact that there would be 10 persecutions, as history now tells us, from Nero to Diocletian from A.D. 64 to A.D. 324, there were 10 persecutions, 10 emperors out of 34. There were 10 epochs of, epochs of persecution, 120 years, over 5 million Christians, it's estimated, lost their lives during that persecution. And so perhaps that 10 days was referencing the potential 10 periods or times of persecution over the next 300 plus years. Let me back up and say this one more time. Guess what? That's when the church grew rapidly, and by the end of 300 years before Constantine made Christianity the religion of the empire, Christianity had spread to where over 50% of then world population had become Christ followers. When it was most under its most intense persecution and difficulty, it grew the fastest and its light was the brightest. Yeah, looking at a group of people, and I'm among you, there are probably very few of us in this room could ever say, I've experienced persecution. Now, some people have experienced it in the form of injustice, when people of privilege and power have kept other people under. That's persecution, no doubt about that, and oppression. But by and large, the vast majority of us in this room have never experienced any form of persecution. Sometimes we get persecution confused with people opposing what we believe. In one of our churches that we had, we had a, a bank attendant who was at the drive through window, and she put up a sign that in her where people could see it, praise the Lord. And her branch manager, who happened to be a Christian, told her she needed to take it down. And she came to me and she said, I'm being persecuted. I said, that's not persecution, that's just wisdom. Somebody's just trying to help you understand how to, how to share your faith in a way that it comes across more personal than in a, in a, in a publicized way. 
So don't, and if somebody gives you a hard time, that doesn't mean persecution. Make sure you understand that persecution is talking about when somebody through their actions move against you in a way that is out to harm you. And that's at various levels. All right? So with that in mind, what can we take away from these words that Jesus said to this particular church? How, how, can, we, how can we back into it? Okay. Let me give you three simple thoughts. You can take them, and then you perhaps can reply them to where you are in your personal situation. Okay? Here's the first thought. Because if we can get the right perspective, it'll prepare us, and we'll have the right approach and right response Whenever we find ourselves facing, which we will, and one of the questions that you and I need to be asking is not, why is there so much persecution in the world, is maybe why isn't there more in my life? Okay? All right, let's go a little bit further. Let's give me, let me give you the first thought. The first thought is this. Every Christ follower is called to a life of sustainable sacrifice. Every Christ follower is called to a life of sustainable sacrifice. What I mean by that is that our lives are to be lived in such a way that lived on mission every single day, everything is to come through that filter that we are constantly presenting our lives to God so that he might, through us, make Christ known. Every single one of us Every single day. I love the way the message version puts it, and it's very familiar, but in this particular version, it maybe gives us a little bit broader understanding of it. Romans 12, 1 and 2, classic under passage of Scripture. Here's what it says in the message version. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking uh, around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God has for you is the best thing that you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention and fix your attention on God. You, you'll, you'll be changed You'll be changed from the inside out, and you'll recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to the level of immaturity. God brings the best out of you, develops, and forms maturity in you. Don't let the surrounding world squeeze you, the culture squeeze you into its mold. No, your life is to be offered every single day, not my life, it's all yours. And God, today, I want my life to be lived out in light of your purposes, lived on mission in light of your call upon my life. That's every single... Some of you may be moving into a, a conversation. As you're moving into conversations about marriage, the question shouldn't be, is this the right guy? But the question should be, is this the guy God or is this the person God has raised up for me to be in my life to help me fulfill his ultimate purpose for my life? If it doesn't go through that filter first, then don't move forward. Whenever you're getting ready to move into a particular neighborhood or take on a particular profession or relate to a particular person, it should always be lived under the umbrella, the filter of is how is this as I present my life to God today to be lived in such a way it will carry out his purposes to make Christ known and to live on mission every single day. For years, I struggled with the whole concept of where that we have Christ is first in our life. If Christ is first, that means that there's a competing second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh, and eighth. And it's not Christ and my life. It's not Christ first in my life. It is Christ over my life. Big difference. Not Christ and Christ over. God has not called us, and this is the point that I want to make in light of what we read. And the challenge for you and for me. God has not called us as Christ followers to live an easy life. 
He has called us to live a life of sustainable sacrifice. To where on a daily basis, we're renewing our confidence in Him and we're renewing our all-in. It's all about you. You are over all. My life is not my own. It's yours. That's what He's calling us to. So what He's saying here is every Christ follower is called to a life of sustainable sacrifice. And I love the definition one person gave of sacrifice. Sacrifice is when you give up something that you love for something you love more. And that's what Christ is calling us to. This church at Smyrna, they got that. That's how they were living their lives. Can you imagine? Here they were. They were, they were told to confess Caesar's Lord. That was their ticket to moving forward with job opportunity. And they said, no, we will not say Caesar's Lord. And what happened? Affliction, poverty, slander. He said, no. I love what Mark says in Mark chapter uh, 10. It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, not for God. For, he was talking about the rich young ruler who had just walked away from his invitation to follow Jesus. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, and here's the part I always liked, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left houses, our brothers or sisters, our mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time, brothers and sisters and mothers and children." And not only in this lifetime, but he said, he goes on and he says, but with lands and then the next part I'm saying, this doesn't need to be in there. I need another version. With persecutions. But it's there. He's saying, if you dare to take up the cross and follow Jesus, it will not be an easy road. It will cost you. Let that sink in for a moment. It will cost you. Various ways, various levels. It will cost you. 2 Timothy 3, once again, says it. He talks to his young son, Timothy, who's having some real challenges about his own faith and Paul says to him, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that have happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Aren't you glad you came this morning? you, you, you know, it's, it's, the, the rebuke to the church at Ephesus was easier. This one is saying, hey, there's no rebuke, but if you're going to live as a Christ follower, this is, what, this is the church that thrives. This is the church that's light shines the brightest. What church is it? It's a church under siege. Is what he's describing. Here's a second thought. And I'll just barely mention this one. Quitting is not an option, even if it costs you your life. Quitting's not an option, even if it costs you your life. Even if it costs you a preferred relationship. Even if it costs you a particular position and opportunity. Even if it costs you everything you've ever dreamed of even if it costs you all of that. The church at Smyrna, it said that they were going to, that they were, going to they were, they had, and they were going to experience more intense suffering. Every time I read the word suffering in the New Testament, here's what comes to my mind. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. And it's going to cost you even to the point that you have to lose your life in a very real way. 
Hebrews, and I don't have time to go through all of this. I just actually want to kind of skip to that Hebrews chapter 12 portion of the scripture that I had originally thought about sharing with you, but I want to move to this point, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1. We know this. Listen to it again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, everything that seems to get in our way that holds us back, and the sin that those areas of disobedience, those areas we want to hold back, our areas we don't want to surrender, which seems to have such a grip on our lives, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's don't lag behind, but let's run, lean into it, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Things don't always turn out the way that we hope that they will turn out when we exercise faith and confidence in God, not in this lifetime. Our faith sometimes allows us to accomplish. Sometimes God says, no, I want your faith to exercise confidence in me and wait, and ultimately, maybe in a lifetime, you'll get to see it. Sometimes it's totally in the future when it has to do with kingdom after this life. But he says, you run that race. When Jesus said to this church, do not be afraid, What he was telling them was not so much, hey, you need to have courage. You need to just, you know, be brave-hearted. As much as he was saying to them, you're going to face things that are going to overwhelm you, but in the midst of that being overwhelmed by all the things that are coming up against you, you remember my overcoming presence in that moment. And instead of letting it paralyze you and causing you to be silent or take a step back or to shrink back or to fall out or to quit or walk away because it's too demanding, it's too challenging, it's too tough, it's too hard, expect too much. No, you lean into it. And you be faithful. You stay in the race. You remind yourself of who God has called you to be and the cost that He has made you aware of. Final thought that I want to share with you and then we're going to wrap things up. Final thought is this. First one was every Christ follower is called to a life of sustainable sacrifice. Second, quitting is not an option even if it costs your life. Third, Renewing your confidence in who Christ promises to be during seasons of intense difficulty is your only hope. Is your only hope. Go back to how did Jesus describe it? Look at this. This is so encouraging in this short postcard. Look at, look at the different ways he describes himself. He says, the words of the first and the last. What does that mean? He's sovereign, he's end and beginning. He's overall, he's got the last word. It says, the one who died and came back to life. He's the one who is victorious. Romans 8, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And will, will the God who spared not his only son not also freely give us all things? It's just kind of this rip in Romans chapter 8 that just kind of gets higher and higher and higher. And he says, hey, you're going to be super conquerors through Christ who loved us. You're not just going to win with a last second shot. You're going to be super victorious. The God who raises the dead is the same God who gives you that same power can overcome. So it reminds you of the resurrection power. And then he says, I know your tribulation. I know, I know, I know. I understand. I'm with you. I am fully, I fully get what's going on. You don't have to explain it to me. I fully get it. Isn't it good to know that Jesus has a full awareness of everything that's coming up against you? None of it's going to catch him by surprise. 
I know your tribulation. I know all about it. And then he said, I will give you the crown of life. Ultimately, you'll have far more than what this life is. There's a, there's a, there's a far greater future. And you keep your eyes on that. So think about it. You're under pressure. Life hits you. Because of your Christ, daring to follow the, 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 the Jesus, pursue the Jesus life, daring to be an all-in Christ follower, challenges come your way, affliction, hardship, you're, you're losing your life, you're offering it for, and, and things don't seem to be letting up, and it's demanding, it's overwhelming, it's overcoming. He says, wait, whoa, whoa. Hey, you don't be afraid. Remain faithful. And here's why. I'm the first and the last. I got this. I'm the, I'm the one who died and rose again. My resurrection power is greater than any power that will come up against you. I'm sufficient for all things. I know, I know, I know I'm with you. Understand. And oh, by the way, there's a future for you. This isn't all there is. As I was reading through this, I was reminded again that there was a very famous bishop in Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And Polycarp was a bishop in Smyrna, and because of his refusal to say Caesar is Lord, and after a slave girl had been tortured, Revealing where he was, the Romans came and the authorities came to burn him at the stake. And as they did, this is what Polycarp, well known, said to them Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me harm. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the proconsul again pressed him, the aged pastor answered, Since thou art vainly urging, urging that I swear by the fortune of Caesar and pretendest not to know who and what I am. Hear me, I am a Christian. A little later, the governor threatened, I have wild beasts at hand. To these I will cast thee, and except thou change. Later, the proconsul said, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing thou despisest the wild beast, if thou wilt not change. Polycarp said, Thou threatenest me with fire which burneth for an hour and after a little is extinguished. But thou art ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. But why tarriest thou? Bring forth what you will. Soon after, the people led by the Jews gathered the wood and, and they burned the faithful pastor. It is said that in the flames... Polycarp prayed this moving prayer. I thank thee that thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of thy martyrs in the cup of thy Christ. It was in Smyrna, the city known to be under siege but had such a powerful force that Jesus said, I can't say anything about you because your light is so bright. It's not flickering. I couldn't bring a message like this, think through a message like this without thinking, what about the current reality? And I'll leave you with a challenge beyond what I've shared this morning for you to take to heart. Today in Turkey, in Smyrna, it's the city of Izmir. It's the third largest city in Turkey. It's over 4 million people. There are less than 1% of the people there that are Christ followers today. 1%. Not only there, but in all of Turkey. In the last 10 days, because of all the activity there on the Syrian-Turkey border, over 300,000 people 
have been displaced. Lives have been lost. Among them, many who were part of a small Syrian Kurdish Christian faith and force. Don't lose sight of that. Don't lose sight of this map that I want you to see. These are the hot spots right now. There are 50 top places where persecution is happening, not 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, but today. And on Sunday, November the 3rd, it will be the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. I would encourage you on that day to find time to look at this map, find a country, whether it be North Korea or India, wherever it may be, and pray for that particular group of people to remember them, to be grateful for them in terms of their faith and the way they show us how to live a life of full devotion to Christ, even if it costs you your life. So, are you ready for what's going to hit someday? Are you ready for that moment when, <laughs> when you're going to have to step up and share your faith and live out your faith in such a way that you know it's going to cost you? That's the challenge. Don't be afraid. Be faithful. Jesus is the first and the last who died and rose again. He's victorious. One of the crazy things, craziest things I've ever done as a pastor was when I was a youth pastor. Youth pastors do crazy things. Right, artists? We had our own student worship service on a Sunday morning. We had about 300 teenagers that would show up every Sunday morning, aid from seventh grade to being a senior in high school. And I was 22 at the time, and it was during the time of the Cold War. It was during the time when there was always this fear about communism spreading and taking over country after country and about nuclear exchanges and all the rest. And so on that particular Sunday, we were trying to help our students understand what it really meant, the cost to be a Christ follower in the midst of hard times. So someone came up with the idea, and I said, okay, let, let's go for it. We created a scene to where somebody came into the service, spoke into my ear, as though it was a very, you know, um, something had just happened, news breaking, I needed to be aware of. And, and so I stepped up to the podium and with all the 300 students, I had them to all stand up and I said, um, and with a quivering in my voice, I said, I just want you to know that there's been a nuclear exchange and that our government has fallen. And I went through this very long scenario about how that Christians were being rounded up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, so we're going to stay here, but if you want to leave and you have, you have the opportunity to leave right now. But we're going to stay here as, as Christ followers. We're going to stay right here in this room. There was, in that moment, tears, even some people crying out. Some students began to leave. And then before anything could go, I said, may God forbid anything like that should ever happen. And then there was this massive sigh of relief across those three under students they sat down now i'm not advising a youth pastor to ever do that that was a pretty stupid scary crazy thing i probably damaged those kids that they're still trying to overcome it and i get that i promise you they remember that service i, I i've gone back and apologized to some of them but the point that i made that morning and I often wonder if things really did to move in on my life, how faithful would I be if it really began to cost me far more than what I've experienced? See, that's the hope of the church. When you have the kind of commitment that says, 
even if it costs me my life. Are you there? Are you there? Let's pray. Father, uh, these are the kind of messages that are not easy to, to not only prepare, but also easy, not easy to share because of the, the gravity of them. Um, so important that we, in our day and time, especially when it's so easy to keep our relationship to Christ and our allegiance to Christ and our trust and our loyalty to Christ at, at a bare minimum level. It's so easy to do that here. Um, Father, you are calling us out for something more. And you're not telling us what it's going to be. You're just telling us if we dare to live in such a way that Jesus invited us to live, to lay down our lives, to lose our lives, that it's going to cost us Father, help us to prepare ourselves to live that way. To not be afraid, to remain faithful. Knowing that quitting is not an option. Reminding ourselves and renewing our absolute confidence and our hope in Christ. Thank you for making our eyes to see, opening our eyes and helping us to listen to these words this morning. What a church that poor little rich church was in Smyrna and how they speak into our lives today and challenge us. May we, Father, be like him, be like them regardless of the cost. We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for giving your life. You showed us the way. You held nothing back. And because of that, we can follow you because of the grace you've extended, the forgiveness through your shed blood, through the full-on sacrifice that you offered for us. We would pray that in light of that, we would never hold back anything from you. In Jesus' name.